Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. I don't know if you can hear it, but if you listen carefully, there's the beautiful Atlantic Ocean waves in the background. I'm actually on my holidays in County Clare and uh, having a lovely time. And I hope you're enjoying the amazing weather. And I hope that you're somewhere near the sea where you can enjoy it too. So exciting times. This week, we're talking to the brilliant author Nisha Dolan. I find it intolerable to be around people and not be able to be completely open and say whatever I'm thinking and react on the spot without too much of a filter. And I'm so much like that that I find it much easier to be alone than to be around people and watch what I say, which is something I am told introverts can very easily just do. Like they don't have a need to voice their every thought at all times. And to me, that is wild. (laughs) A person can be happy like that, but it takes all sorts. So I think that's how I've ended up actually behaving in quite introverted ways. Because if I can't be myself, I'd rather just be alone. But first, a story that caught our eye this week. The feminist strike in Geneva, Switzerland on Wednesday, where a crowd of demonstrators screamed at the top of their lungs in unison with hundreds of others as part of the feminist strike protesting gender inequality in one of the world's wealthiest countries. One of the protesters said the salary inequality continues, violence continues, and there are not at all enough measures to match the scale of what is happening. So these were female demonstrators staging strikes and protests across the country, calling for equal pay and end to violence against women and the LGBT community and greater recognition of their often unpaid work to care for family members. And the scream happened at 3.24pm on Wednesdays. Reuters said that it was the time when women would technically begin working for free given wage discrimination. And they began shouting at Geneva's Plain Palais Square, a collective cry that lasted about a minute. It's a scandal that today we don't have the same salaries as men, said one of the women. And actually many Swiss women hold an annual strike and protest on June 14th, the day that marks the anniversary of a 1981 vote that enshrined the principle of equality in the constitution so a collective feminist scream how about it uh, it's certainly an interesting one and a bit cathartic if nothing else now another thing i wanted to tell you about especially for all of you going off on holidays at some point uh being on my holidays myself and reading a book that i've just fallen absolutely in love with and i can't i can't tell you how much i love this book and i want everyone to know about it It's not by a female author, but I think I can get away with mentioning it on the women's podcast because there are such a lot of lovely and amazing, well, lovely is the wrong word. There's such amount of fantastic female characters in it. So I think I will get away with the recommendation. The book is called The Bee Sting by Paul Murray. Now, you might remember him from his other big book, Skippy Dies. Uh, It was over a decade now, but this book, The Bee Sting, I've been going around telling everyone I know how wonderful it is. I've been using the words masterpiece and genius, but it's also just full of joy and humanity 
and incredible storytelling. It's a family saga. It's sprawling and capacious and I just guarantee you are going to enjoy it. Now I sometimes doubt myself with books because sometimes I've recommended books to friends and they're like oh my god I hated it. So, But I don't think I'm on the wrong track this time because I looked up a review in The Guardian and they called it a tragicomic triumph. So don't just take my word for it. And I have to tell you, the book is over 600 pages long, which sounds daunting, but you're going to fly through it and you will not want to put it down. The Bee Sting by Paul Murray. Honestly, read it, enjoy it, savour it. You are very, very welcome. Now, Dubliner Nisha Dolan came to our attention a few years ago with her debut novel, Exciting Times, set in Hong Kong, telling the story of Ava, a young Irish woman teaching English to locals there. It was smart, funny, elegant, and it became a bestseller uh, to the huge surprise of the author. And now Nisha has published a second book, The Happy Couple, which is an intimate, sharply funny novel about Celine and Luke, who are a couple heading towards their wedding. And it's also about the three friends in their lives who may or may not draw them apart. As the wedding approaches, these five lives intersect and each character find themselves looking for a path to their happily ever after. But does that happily ever after lie at the end of the aisle is the question that Nisha Dolan is asking. And I loved this book too. And I really enjoyed talking to Nisha Dolan again. She came into the studio, uh, which was wonderful because the other time we've spoken to her was via Zoom. And uh, But she was on a trip home from her adopted city of Berlin. And she talked to me about loads of things, um, about growing up obsessed with books about going to Trinity and nearly taking up a career in law and she was also very interesting on how she deals with self-doubt and the compulsion towards self-criticism which often afflicts particularly women I think and of course we talked about relationships and monogamy and why her characters are about as far from heteronormative as you can possibly imagine. Nisha is sparkling company and I think you're going to really enjoy hearing from her. So here's my chat with Nisha Dolan. Nisha, welcome back to the Women's Podcast. You've come over from Berlin. So I first want to ask you about living in that very cool city because I've never been and I hear it's very cool. That's the only word I can say. It is very cool. I'm not quite sure I'm cool enough for it, but certainly (laughs) I would much rather be in a place where everyone else is much cooler than me than be the coolest person in a place because that way I always have something to aspire to. Yes, and there's too much pressure, I think, probably having to maintain the cool. Yes, exactly. Whereas in Berlin, no matter how much I lapse in coolness personally, someone else will pick up the slack. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, You have lived outside of Ireland in a number of different places. I'm presuming then that that's what you like. You like to be away from this country. Yeah, but it does give me weird mixed feelings when I'm back because I'm suddenly like, Irish people are objectively the best. Why did I ever leave? But I think sometimes you need to go away to appreciate it, to know what's specific about Ireland that it's not just universally true that everyone is so nice and so talkative. And yeah, it's given me a new love of Ireland. And you've been back a few days now. So when you come back um, and you're settling back in, what is it that you go, oh God, this is why I really like it? It's usually just the first conversation I have with someone I don't know. And you realise Irish people are always going on about how we're really into small talk, but we're not. We just do big talk with absolutely anyone. And... I actually came here via England because I was doing my book promo there first. And the way I put it is Germans don't do small talk and they'll do big talk if they have a relationship of trust that warrants it. English people 
need something to fill the silence, but they won't transition as easily as Irish people to big talk. And so you just have to keep making these remarks about Ugh. the weather and the it's birds. And, yeah, no, it's a lot of strain. So I'd much rather just be here and share my life story. Yeah, and with anyone. And also talk about the weather at the same time. Yes, and complain. We're great at that. But we do it very entertainingly. Like the Germans are also a nation of complainers, but it's a lot less... Baroque, a form of complaint. It's more stoical and resigned, whereas Irish people will do it so colourfully and so out of proportion that it's still a lot of fun in the same way. It's an mm. art form. And I'm very impressed that you're learning German. You're quite a studious person, I feel, and that impresses me. How's I, your German going? Pretty well. I met with my German translator recently because the new book will be out in German next spring. So we're going to try to do an event together in German. Oh, wow. So yeah. that's some, uh, something to kind of build towards. Yeah, like I think the way it stands right now, I could do it tomorrow, but equally it's a really good motivator because every extra bit that I learn, it's going to make it more fun down the line. So it's not too much pressure, but it's just the right amount. What is the happy couple in German? Ooh, I'm going to get the case wrong, but I think it's... But nobody will know, so it's okay yeah. to say something that sounds <laughs> vaguely... That or something like your that. Your accent is excellent. Oh, I don't know about that. I think they can understand me, but it's very clear that I'm not a native speaker. Okay, well, look, let's... Before we get into the happy couple, and I'm not going to try and attempt to say what you just said and call it in German, um, and also Exciting Times, which was your uh, first book, which on this women's podcast we absolutely loved and we've had you on before so we're delighted you're back. Let's go back to your childhood and growing up um, and what kind of made you a writer I suppose. So I know it's something that you came to later in life it wasn't like you were wanting to write books earlier but what was your childhood like? What was your family like? Your upbringing? Let's get deep Nisha. Let's always get deep. The Irish urge to delve. Yeah I think books always seem to me like the thing and Everything else in life was what I had to do so that I could forge a bit of reading time for myself. And as an adult, I sometimes wonder, was it that feeling of constraint that made me love reading so much? Because I didn't have infinite time to do it. So that was why I cherished it so much, maybe. But whatever the origin of it, I have loved reading for absolutely as long as I can remember. And the pivot then to writing did come much later, like you say, but I think it was really once I became interested in the mechanics underlying books and the fact that if a human made this, it's surely replicable for another human to figure out how they did it and then try it themselves. And I think that took the pressure off a bit because it wasn't necessarily that I wanted to produce a literary masterpiece. Mm -hmm. I thought if I can figure out how books are made by trying to make my own, that's still a one-up. It'll still let me enjoy literature in more depth. So I really did it in that crafty kind of way, just picking things apart. And can we go back to a small niche for a while though? Sitting, I'm, I'm picturing you sitting in a corner, head in the book, people shouting your name and you're not hearing them because you're very, Is that would that be a good, accurate? Yes. And I'm still like that to this day. Recently, a friend was telling an anecdote about a time when we were out with some people we both knew and... Her version of events was that there was this guy who was being really rude and she was speaking admiringly of how I just pretended not to hear him. And I just legitimately excluded this man from my version of reality. So I've always been like that. I just focus on the thing that I like. OK, so and that's part of your personality, part of, well, you have autism as well. And is that part of that, do you think? Yeah, I think it's a form of optimism. I don't do it It's an ism, blindly. another ism. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Lots of isms, swim, swimming in isms. But <laughs> I, 
I wouldn't do it naively. I would look at things and go, what's relevant to my decision making and what isn't? And if it's relevant to my decision making, I will still bear it in mind. But if my behaviour would be the same regardless, then there's really no point in thinking about it. Like, Mm. if I paid attention to this rude man... I probably still wouldn't have wanted to talk to him. So might as well just pretend he's not there. I like it. It's a good good, uh, lesson. I'm also thinking of um, the reading thing again because I have two 14-year-old children who would kill me if they knew I was mentioning. But luckily they don't listen to the podcast, so it's okay. Um, And I have a house full of books and I am someone who loves reading and I've been trying since they were and since they were small you know books have been in front of them and they're just not readers, right? Have you any advice for like is it something innate because it sounds like you just you know, it happened with you and there was no, nobody beating you across the head with um, Enid Blyton books or anything trying to get you to read them. Yeah, I was drawn to books, but I think maybe another factor is that I was a lot more bored than children are today. My parents yes. definitely limited TV. There was no question of owning a smartphone. Definitely no internet. I remember the sound of the dial-up and even that came fairly late into my childhood while I was already established as a reader. So I'd say it's tougher today because you don't want them to be excluded from everything that their friends are doing. But equally, and I'd have this myself as an adult, when you got the cheap dopamine, it's really hard to focus for the longer term rewards. So yeah. even today, I'll have to limit my own internet time to stay focused on books. I know, and I need to stop being so sort of sad about it because, I mean, I think of my, I mean, I'm 20 years older than you, but I had that book thing when I was younger and I'd be reading and I would go to other people's houses and I'd be reading in their houses and they'd think I'm antisocial. But I just, I don't know, it was what I liked to do. But maybe it was that. Maybe it was just there was nothing else to do or I don't know. Yeah, yeah I, I had the same thing. I would frequently get in trouble for going to my friends' houses and reading their books instead of playing with them. And no insult intended at all. It's no, just, it's just a very them. sort of natural thing to gravitate towards it. So then you went to college and you studied in Trinity. And what did you study? I studied English. Okay. So you, again, it was like the idea of reading lots of books. Was that what appealed? Yeah, very much. And I don't think I've ever been a particularly academic person in terms of learning things directly from class and doing especially well in that format. I think it's more if I enjoy doing something anyway, then I can marshal what I've learned in an exam situation. So I was not particularly hardworking at Trinity, I think, but I had such an innate love of my subject that I was able to more or less make that work for me. So was it just, was it a really happy time in your life? I mean, was this kind of just oh, the dream, going into Trinity College and having to read books and that's what you're supposed to be doing? Yeah, I think it was really a time when a lot of things that I had always been helpless but to be were suddenly socially rewarded. Like suddenly <laughs> it was cool to have read all these massive books. It was cool to be analytical and to always delve into everything. Yeah, it was just a space where I felt like I didn't have to change myself as much to fit Mm. in. And at that point when you're um, studying in Trinity and reading all the books, are you, you did you have an idea of what you wanted to end up doing or were you kind of just have that lovely thing of getting educated for the sake of it or was there a goal in mind? I definitely wanted to leave with some form of job because I never thought that writing could be my job. So the idea was to go into law because I figured that way you're still working with words and you're making arguments and things. And I nearly did, but... How close did you come to that? I'd actually started a conversion course and everything in London. 
but then all the book stuff started and I figured it's much better to give one thing your all than try to divide your attention between the two. So, Is it something you still would be interested in? Not innately. I think it would be a second choice, but okay. equally because of the focus thing, I think once I've decided to do something, that thing can then become interesting to me. So that's why my only option was ever to become fluent in German, because learning a little bit of something is not no for interest. me. I wish <laughs> I was like that. I'm terrible. I want to be like that because I pick up the ukulele and I know a few chords and the guitar. And I want to be like that. How do I get to be like a Unisha where I'm like, no, I, can't, oh, I have to be like Taylor Swift and know every single um, chord. I need a bit of whatever that is. Discipline? I don't know. I think I might use discipline at the start to set a system up, mm. but I know it will only ever work in the long run if I'm actually enjoying the thing. Yeah. So I'll use discipline for that initial pain of a habit change, but I have to actually like the new habit and want to stay with it. Yeah, I mean, I like playing ukulele and guitar, but I don't, it's just when I get to, okay, this is getting very niche, but um, <laughs> F is my problem, right? I got right. to the F and it's a particularly <laughs> tricky hand thing. And then I can't do it straight away. So I go, well, I'm not doing guitar anymore and I'll just have G, C, E minor, A, the easy ones. So how will I get over that? How you get over your effing problem. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I've got an effing problem. Yeah, but I guess we're all different. Like for your job, I think it's fantastic that you're able to take interest in any kind of guest you might come across and to meet people a bit where they're at. Mm. And maybe the trade-off of that is you can't become as much of an obsessive nerd about any one thing. But Okay, you've made me feel a bit better. <laughs> but now you've also made me think, no, I can. I can become an obsessive nerd. I'm going to go I home and get the F. Go- right, thanks. <laughs> I'm going to check where yeah. you're doing your homework. <laughs> Great. And now let's talk about Hong Kong because Exciting Times, the book that you kind of... I suppose, first of all, maybe you can describe how you got into writing. It was quite organic. You sort of were just trying it out almost as a creative experiment. Yeah, I think because I just intended it to be a fun hobby, I didn't put the pressure on it that someone might have if they had, I suppose, more of an ego around it. And so I jumped straight into trying a novel because that's the form I've always enjoyed reading the most. I've read way more novels than short stories, so even though it might seem on the face of it a mad, ambitious thing to do, it was what made sense for me because it's the one I knew well. And I think as well, maybe I've sometimes underestimated how long I have actually been writing because it was never with a goal in mind, so I kind of forget that I did it. But like, yeah, that you've been practicing. Yeah, but a long I wrote time. a whole novel in my mid-teens. <laughs> I just um, have long since forgotten what this novel was even about. But where is this novel? <laughs> um, it died with the laptop it was on. I think oh, this was well okay. before the cloud. Yes. But it. So you had been dabbling. Yeah, but definitely exciting times was the first big serious thing that I wrote. And I think it's because it was while I had my first full-time real job teaching English. So it's a weird kind of exhaustion that I got from that Mm. because in a way I was very busy. They have quite a hectic working culture in Hong Kong. But equally, I'd end the day physically exhausted, but with all this mental energy. And so writing was really the perfect outlet for that because physically it demands very little of you. You know, maybe the top half of your hands gets exercised or if you've got very good posture, then your core gets exercised from keeping you up, but otherwise not so much. But it's really tiring for your brain. So that was what I needed, something where I didn't have to move. But And, I, and you were teaching English as a foreign language there, right? In yeah. Hong Kong. And the book is about a person who does that job. Was it that kind of a deliberate, look, I'm going to write all my observations and put them into a fictional form or how? did you come to that? 
I think the kind of things that I find interesting to research, I did and I completely made up in the book, but the kind of things I don't, I just plucked from that. So I don't find it interesting to research how many employees are there typically at a given kind of place or what's the physical layout of different workspaces. So I just took that. But all the stuff about grammar, I wasn't even remotely teaching. The the Ah, emphasis was much more in just getting the kids talking. They were a lot younger than the kids I put in the book for the most part, but... I really love learning about grammar. So I learned about grammar in order to put that in the book. And when you'd finished the book, again, expectations for it or what you thought would happen or how did it come t- to publication? Because it doesn't sound like you'd this big ambition for yourself. No, and that's why it took me so long to edit it because I always had other plans that I was pursuing. So after I was in Hong Kong, I went to do a master's in Victorian literature oh, yeah. at Oxford. And my idea was to just use that year to start applying for jobs in London. And And what kind of jobs would you have been applying for? Mostly law training contracts. So it was just handy to be there doing something that would look good on the LCV. But the novel really, I, I would come back to it every now and then, but I leave it that space in between. And I think that made me a better editor of my own work than if I hadn't had that distance. But it did mean it took well over a year to edit it. So I wrote the first draft in 2017. And then in kind of early 2018, I got a few offers from agents when I'd been sending it out. And And you just sent it out yourself to agents to see, okay. Yeah, and then a few more months of editing it with the agent I went with. But even then, I thought it would maybe go out with a small indie press and it would receive a number of enthusiastic but small-scale reviews and would maybe have one print run and then be completely forgotten. And I was fine with that because I wasn't <laughs> because, Were you happy it. with it yourself? Like, did you feel, yeah, I've done a good job here? Yeah, but it's always interesting when something worked on the way that I worked on it blows up because my ambitions for it were so different to what it ended up being judged against. Because, of course, once a publisher has given something a big platform and a big marketing budget, Mm. understandably, people then judge it by whether it's the kind of book they think warrants that. But all I was judging it by was, is it a novel? Does it fulfil the basic requirements of the form? So I was proud of myself for that, but I couldn't really say how it measured up to other proper books. But it must have been great feeling when, you know, something that you approached in that way became this thing that was had a, such a buzz around it and lived up completely, I believe, and I think lots of other people to the expectation and the acclaim that it was getting. Was it a nice time? Yeah. Except it was sort of pandemic time. (laughs) Exciting times. Yeah, well, I suppose publishing is so slow that a lot of that was happening well before the pandemic because I got the book deal in early 2019, so a full year before it came out. And that's actually relatively fast for publishing. So I got to enjoy it in an uncomplicated way before it became a very complicated way indeed. Yeah, and all the interviews and stuff like that were through that time. Yeah, I think actually I did all the Irish interviews before the pandemic. It was about a week before things really. Yeah, because you would have been in here. Were you physically in here? I'm just trying to remember. Or did we... I don't think I was in here. I think we did an event together at Molly. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That was for BBC Radio 4. Yes. I should mention, I have to boast about that. I was on BBC Radio 4. <laughs> You've been on Radio 4 loads of times that I, I haven't got, been on loads. But um, yeah, so it was a, it was a great thing and it did do really, really well. And then what about the pressure of coming to the next one? Because in music, they talk about the difficult second album. Um, And for you, did you feel the weight of expectation? The fact that your first novel had been such a success, uh, selling loads of copies, but also just the critical acclaim, which was brilliant. 
how, did that paralyze you in any way? Because that can happen. I don't think so, because I will always find a way to turn things against myself. And it's not like if everyone had hated the first book, I would have been like, well, I feel really encouraged now. So I think if it had happened to me earlier in life, it could well have done so. Mm. But by then, enough things had happened to me that I had identified the pattern where a thing happens to me, I find a way that this is bad, I feel bad for a bit, and then I get over it. So I fully expected, however the first one did, that I would feel in some way, I don't know, impeded from writing a good second one. So when you see it coming, you can really easily disregard it and go like, oh, this thing that always happens is happening. Can I interrogate that a little bit more, this kind of turning things against yourself? business? Um, Because I know you've done a lot of work thinking about these things, aspects of yourself. So where does that come from? Is it an innately Irish thing? Is it to do with you yourself? Your What, what, what do you put it down to? I guess... It's, sort of self, it's not quite self-sabotage, is it? It's different to that. No, it feels like self-protection, I think. And it's difficult when all your different forms of identity are happening in the one body. So I can't say how much of it is a general Irish need to cut yourself down before other people cut you down, how much of it is being a naturally quite extroverted, flamboyant person, but that not being acceptable in a girl. So I kind of ended up being afraid of everyone's reactions to me. How much of it is internalised homophobia? I have no idea. But the end result is definitely that... I feel like someone is going to punish me for being too happy and too proud of myself. And so if I do it, the punishment will be lighter than if someone else then does it. Now, I feel like knowing something about yourself and getting rid of the thing are two entirely different steps. Completely. Yes. So I would say I'm somewhere in between the two. I'm definitely past the awareness point, but I still need to continuously invoke that awareness. And when I feel an inexplicable wash of shame after I've done something, go, oh, yes, that's a wash of shame. The shame does not have a cause, it's just the wash of shame. So I will deal with it on those terms as just a random weather event almost, except it's happening <laughs> in my body. Yeah, and you mentioned there something interesting about that you were too much uh, for being a girl or that people didn't like it. Tell me more about that. Yeah, because... When I talk to my mother about how I was as a kid, it's wild how differently we remember it because I remember myself as always having been a really shy kid and she's baffled by this. But I think it's because she remembers me before I started school where I wasn't necessarily always in need of company. I could entertain myself very well, but I definitely wasn't socially inhibited in any way. But I suppose what I remember is the start of consciousness of this being a bit too much for people sometimes and of then learning to hold it back. But I think that's still ultimately an extroverted impulse. And it took me ages to realise this, but I think what goes on is I find it intolerable to be around people and not be able to be completely open and say whatever I'm thinking and react on the spot without too much of a filter And I'm so much like that, that I find it much easier to be alone than to be around people and watch what I say, which is something I am told introverts can very easily just do. Like they don't have a need to voice their every thought at all times. And to me, that is wild. (laughs) A person can be happy like that, but it takes all sorts. So I think that's how I've ended up actually behaving in quite introverted ways. Because if I can't be myself, I'd rather just be alone. Is that what we call masking? Are you describing that? Yes, I think so. But... I guess, again, because of the multi-pronged nature of identity, definitely some of it is that if I were 
it's impossible to imagine almost, but if I were the same person but neurotypical, then probably I would have gotten different reactions because the things that I wanted to spout about to everyone might have been maybe more normal. It wouldn't have been a childhood childhood obsession with punctuation. Maybe it would have been, I don't know, whatever kids are interested in that's not mm. semicolons. So. And you mentioned internalised homophobia there as well, which is interesting. Did you did it come from other people too, homophobia in your life? Yeah. When you, you knew you were queer from an early age? I definitely didn't have an explicit association with the term, but I felt something hurt in me when kids use slurs in a really casual way, absolutely not themselves knowing the meaning of what they were saying. And I don't know if that's because I already felt a commonality or if it's just empathy and that happens in everyone's body. But regardless, it wasn't nice. And I'm glad that kids are a bit more up on things now. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Let's talk about the happy couple because you you told me when my I did we did an interview for the Irish Times for the magazine and you were talking about the different goes you had at it. And not necessarily because you were impeded like you say or paralyzed, but you just it just happened that way. So you wrote a couple of books before the Happy Couple, which I just find you so ridiculously productive. It's sickening. But uh, tell us about the process then that came to this one. I think I'm such a tactile writer that if I try to write a book in my head, I'll never get anywhere. So that's why I'm not sure that I actually do any more work than people who get it right the first time because they've probably done a lot of that mentally and then they're just externalising the work they've already done, whereas nothing goes on internally. (laughs) It it is all um, bird song and random flashing colours in my head and to make it make any sense, I've got to get it out where I can see it and then I can start making decisions about what to keep and what to move around. So I, like you said, wrote two novels as a way into this novel and some elements carried over, some didn't. Uncle Grelin, I think, came in somewhere in the second novel. He's one of my favourite characters in The Happy Couple. 
a wise man and talk about Uncle Grelin he's great but let's tell everyone about the happy couple who hasn't read it um, let's do the pitch first uh, it's I have to say declare I think it's wonderful I loved exciting times I loved this one as well and I I just think you're so clever and funny you just make me laugh a lot which I which I love um so tell us about the concept of the happy couple we're leading up to a wedding yes Uncle Grell and I got to inform you is not the main character. The main character is... <laughs> but he might have another spin-off novel, I feel. <laughs> could be a whole Russell Carroll Kelly-esque series. <laughs> I could see it. But the main couple are Luke and Celine, who at the start of the novel decide to get married. And we follow them and three attendees in their friend circle in the run-up to this wedding. And everyone gives their own take on the relationship. So... I think the focus is really on getting inside each of these voices in turn and showing how much of a relationship is down to interpretation, not to some external event. So a lot of them comb over the same conversation and have a completely different angle on it. So that was a lot of Which fun. is brilliant because that's what happens in real life. We, we can all have the same experience and have a completely different uh, take on it. Yes, we all have our villains and none of the villains know that they are the villain. <laughs> exactly. Well, let's talk about Celine first of all. She's a piano player. She's very obsessive about it and she wears gloves to protect her hands. I suppose you have to be to be a... I learned a lot about someone who's at that high level from your book. Um, but you, you've played piano before in your life, but not to the level Celine does. No, I would say I was a good amateur, but very happy to stop there with it. And would you have studied like in the academy or anywhere like that? No, I did academy exams. Yeah, I think I stopped in my late teens because I realised either I would have to start taking it more seriously to feel like that I was still improving because the better you get at something, the less accessible each incremental improvement becomes. The low hanging fruit was kind of taken care of. So I would either need to get more obsessive about it to keep improving or I would have to stop because I have no ability to statically enjoy something. I always have to feel that there's positive change happening. So I ended up dropping it. really interesting. There always has to be some kind of goal. Yeah, yeah, I I think it's an Aries thing. I know I said identity is complicated, but I just think this is what Aries are like. Okay, uh, yeah. What, what are Librans like? I'm a Libran. Gosh, I couldn't tell you. I'm not as up in my astrology oh, okay, as my younger brother. He's the one you need to ask, right, Mike I'll, Dolan. I'll ask, what's his name? Mike Dolan. We'll get Mike Dolan on and find out yes. the answer to that. But um, just going back to Celine then, this piano uh, is so interesting. She talks a lot about Liszt. She's... Um, she has a girlfriend and she's also a piano player and they have this amazing sort of competitive thing between each other and the relationship doesn't work out. Did did you kind of, you with your da- sort of piano, um, I don't know, how, you, how did you describe yourself as in terms of your competency? Decent amateur. Decent amateur. <laughs> was it intriguing to you to kind of um, explore a character who was went to that nth degree that you never went to? Yeah, I think... This might sound a bit pop psychology, but... We love a bit of pop psychology here always. on the Women's Podcast. <laughs> Hence pop, because it's so popular. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I think to some degree, I took my sense of internal conflict that I have over any artistic pursuit, really, and I gave different ends of it to these two characters, where one of them took the side of the argument that's art for art's sake, and that would be Celine. She does it for the pleasure of itself. And then her ex-girlfriend Maria is more of an ambitious, externally focused person. 
And I feel like those are always the two wolves in me when I'm doing anything. One's always wanting it to be better than the last thing. And the other one's just like, chill, just have fun. Who wins? Who does win? Well, we'll have to say, I would say Celine wins just about because while I like the sense of improvement from moment to moment, I really can't do something unless the thing itself is fun. Yeah. So tell us about Luke then, a very different character to Celine, but somehow they meet each other at a party and they, they get together. But yeah. very different. Yeah, I would say... Celine is in her own way a very focused character and not focused so much on external goals, but very focused on piano and happy for her enjoyment of this to structure the rest of her life. Whereas Luke is a lot more of a floater. He's never really found his thing. He's terrible at making decisions. And so at this encounter at a party, that's what he's immediately drawn to about Celine when she explains why she wears the gloves to protect her precious fingers. And their dynamic really develops along those lines where there's a sort of mutual fascination, her with his chillness and vagueness, which she quite generously reads into in a way that young women are often prone to, I think, as maybe signifying a depth that may or may not be there. And on his end, it's that sense of something to anchor to. Mm. And the book is great in exploring kind of in a way, the inevitability of a young couple or any age couple deciding that ultimately what they will do is get married. There's a kind of this, well, this this is what you do. And Celine lists out all the kind of different um, influences she's had over the years about relationships and what she's learned from society's expectations. Because even though she's had a girlfriend and she's, yeah, she's suppose she's bisexual or whatever, not that it becomes a big deal in the book at all, but she's kind of uh, learned a lot from what the expectations are of her. And that's how I feel like she ends up in this sort of potential marriage situation with Luke. So is that interesting to you, um, kind of how society uh, tells women particularly, but men as well, that this is the end result, is this walk down the aisle? Yeah, and I think writing fiction makes me be rigorous about it in a way that I wouldn't if I were writing non-fiction, because my entry point is never observing something general in society and then wanting to crystallise it. Rather, it's starting with an individual character and feeling intuitively that it would make sense for them to behave a given way, but not really understanding why. And for me, then bringing politics into the explanation is usually just trying to arrive at what I see as the truth in a most effective way, because leaving patriarchy and tetranormativity out of the explanation as to why Celine would get married, it'd be like refusing to use a calculator. <laughs> you know, if other people have invented these devices, these means of reaching the right answer it's not taking shortcuts to just use those and to bring it into the explanation I would have felt like I was being needlessly coy and leaving that out somehow and now for people who are very heteronormative you mentioned the word you know men and women and you know, heterosexuality or whatever this book is like not like that in terms of everybody almost everybody in the book has some kind of fluidity around their sexuality but it's not made a big song and dance of it's not a big deal and um, when I asked you about that before you were saying that it's just really reflecting in a way your friend circle whereas I suppose for some people they wouldn't necessarily have lots of friends who are in very fluid kind of situations but um was it also, though, that, I mean, or is it only that, that you want to reflect the kind of people that you hang around with in your books? Yeah, I think I'm very conscious that literature isn't a zero-sum game. And if you want to see something in novels, 
probably instead of pointing at novels that don't do that and saying, why didn't you do that? You can just write your own. (laughs) So that's what certainly that's something that's within my toolkit to do. And I think once I've written my own, I'm then much better placed to enjoy novels where that doesn't happen because I'm not approaching it with this scarcity mindset. Mm. So especially growing up in the Ireland that I did, which was already, I would say, ahead of the Ireland my parents did, but still by no means perfect. I really had to learn to see myself in books where there was no representation as such. And I think that's a a valuable skill. I'm not sorry to have done that, to have learned to relate to stories that aren't explicitly about me. But equally, it's nice to have some that are. Yeah, and as as someone, I haven't, I suppose you, um, Sally Rooney did it with a little bit with Conversation with Friends where there was a relationship there. Again, it wasn't a big deal that these people were in a, um, two women were in a relationship and then she was in a relationship with her. But I think with with your books as well, for me as a more heteronormative person, I suppose I'd say, it's not bad, is it bad to be heteronormative? Anyway, I'm just thinking about it. What do you think? Because you said to me in our interview, gay is a fun button to press. Yeah. God should push it more often. So I think you're right. Like, Because I love reading, even though it's not not my friend circle, it's not my experience. I just find it so interesting. Yeah, you know? and in a way, it would be mad if you didn't because I've taken interest in so many straight books yeah. over the years. So I would need to think that you didn't have my capacity for empathy to think that oh, it didn't totally. go the other way, which you I do. feel like almost nosy, though, reading that. Yeah. I'm like, oh, God, yeah, that's so interesting. Like, and, and it, like a bit of, an, of a kind of square as well, I have to say. Do you know what I mean, though? Going, oh, this is going, I've gone along in my life. I've had a couple of boyfriends. I got, you know, got married, I broke up, have another relationship. That's part of the history of my romantic um, uh, life. But uh, yeah, and it's kind of, it's cool. It's like, oh. What are the cool kids doing a bit is what I feel reading your books. Yeah, but I think that's what everyone's like. I really like an answer I saw Fran Leibowitz give once when someone asked her, how did it feel not having any books about Jewish lesbians growing up? And she's just like, it felt completely fine because I read literature to escape to other worlds. I do think that's with the caveat that she found a community in New York and became very comfortable in her identity and eventually had access to all sorts of art. But still, I, I think the ability to see the world through someone else's eyes is a beautiful thing. But there's also the argument as well that people want to read things that they really relate to and that it's like they can see themselves in it. So, you know, that um, is a little bit of a lie, I think, like you say, because people are interested in all sorts of, you know, setups. Yeah, I always feel like, why can't we have both? For me, I'm always pleased when I can do one of those things. And if I can do both and maybe curate my reading for a given time when sometimes I just want to feel recognised and sometimes I want to understand someone else Mm. and there doesn't really need to be one purpose of literature I think it's a great thing So tell us about a couple of the other characters well Uncle Growlin is in London and is kind of the the uncle as as you would know from the name Uncle Growlin to Celine and they're sort of hosting the kind of preparations for the marriage they have the engagement party in their house but he's a he's a great Irish guy who came over to London and uh, made good he lives in Hampstead not Kilburn the good the people who make it go to, to Hampstead and he's kind of full of sort of Irish wisdom for her I think yeah I think Uncle Growlin in a way is my love letter to the general Irish capacity for storytelling I would be most surprised if Uncle Growlin ever published a single thing in his life Orally, he's the character who has the most complex relationship with English, I think. He speaks the best sentences. We don't really get in his head to the extent that we do the main characters. But 
I think for me, that's a reflection of the fact that if Ireland produces an unusual number of good writers, it's really because to be any Irish person and to be viewed as socially functional within Ireland, you need to be able to tell a good story. You need timing. You need wit. You need to know when to draw things out and when to speed them up. And that's just what we're like as people. So I think Uncle Grelin is a reflection of that quality of ours. He's lovely. He's an adorable character. I really liked him. And t- tell me about Archie, less adorable. Because you've you've said, I think recently, that you find them all quite annoying, most of your characters. <laughs> <laughs> I do find them annoying, but in the way that you find your best friend annoying. (laughs) (laughs) I find them annoying because I know they should be doing better for themselves, but that shows that I care, doesn't it? It does, it does. Yeah, if I were apathetic towards them, I would just let them get on with it, but I'm always nudging them to make better choices and they don't. Archie is quite annoying. Yes, he can be. (laughs) Um, Archie is... British, Irish and Indian and he speaks in a slightly antiquated P.G. Woodhouse-esque style and I had a lot of fun weaving that into his narrative style as well because it's always a bit of a tightrope with that. You don't want every sentence to be oversaturated but you want those hints of it so he might reflect on passing that something is jolly well something or other and on he goes. But he's I think in a way the sunniest disposition of the lot True. because he's so confident and that's not to say that he doesn't stress about things but he always feels that he is basically fine and that it's other people that are the problem and that's quite entertaining to write. Mm. And I mean I think somebody's I saw a review somebody said it's like a pantangle as opposed to a love triangle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a, a sex lot pan- of pentangle. A, yeah. a sex pentangle, that's kind of cool. <laughs> I would be happy if that was uh, That's very Berlin, actually. Yeah, it does, very Berlin. Because there's kind of interweaving of all the different relationships. And Luke, I think it's not a spoiler to say Luke is not a faithful person. No. No, because that happens, That we sort of know that quite early on. What is it about that kind of thing that you were interested in exploring, those kind of more... I don't know. Yeah, not monogamous and people who are kind of have living more open relationships, I suppose. Except it's not really open. Celine is not really happy about him potentially going off with other people. Yeah, I think I'm not interested in writing about characters who are doing something straightforwardly evil that they know to be straightforwardly evil, simply because I don't think that such people exist. I think however mad it might be, the person always has a reason that what they're doing is actually okay. And they mightn't interrogate that too closely. And probably if they did, they would have to change their mind or stop doing the thing. But they have a story that works Mm. for them. And I think for a guy like Luke, if you've got these general ideas swirling around your head about why polyamory is a more humane way to exist and yada yada, the fact that that's not the explicit arrangement you actually have with your partner, if you're good enough at doublethink and at not making the full connections that can muddy the waters a bit. And I think in some ways that's my answer to how to write about how people do relationships now and not make it be boring because it is perfectly true in the real world that many people very healthily and happily practice polyamory. That's great. Not good for fiction. You need problems in fiction. And so um, I manufactured many problems for my cast. Yes, definitely. And what about monogamy then? Like, do you feel it's a bit old fashioned? I think it really depends on the person. And as well on our definitions of what you should get from a romantic relationship, because so much of it can be outsourced. And I think it's our need to be needed that stops us from accepting that. The idea that something can be important to our partner and that they could be getting it from someone else is in some way threatening when 
it doesn't really make sense when you think about it because the point of a relationship shouldn't be that someone has to be with you. It should be that they want to be with you. So mm. I don't have any straight up answers or rules or regulations. I'm sadly not in a position to tell people what to do. Maybe I should be. But I think you should. Um, no, <laughs> Nisha for president, I think yeah. There's, yeah, there's a great uh, bit at the end, which I really, near the end, and I don't think it's giving anything much away, but there's one of the characters is talking about how, you know, it's almost about in a relationship, you're kind of trying to sometimes put all your eggs in one basket, which is doesn't make sense, as you've been sort of saying there, that like we need things from lots of different people and we get those things from lots of different people. So we shouldn't have expectations in a relationship to fill, fulfill all our needs. And I thought that was very well put. Thank you. Yeah. And interesting as a thing, because sometimes... And I think that's probably why society does put up marriage and monogamy and the heteronormative idea as the holy grail. And that's what it's saying. It's like you're going to find your one, the other half of you, there's the soulmate thing, and that will be all right. But it's it's not really realistic. No, and that's not to say it doesn't work for anyone. But I think if you choose something that's the traditional path with awareness that you can do something else, surely that makes that choice more meaningful I think anything that people choose freely will always then say more about them and be more deeply felt mm. than something that they had to do whether they wanted to or not. Yeah. I mean, I think as someone who's been in a relationship for maybe 23 years this summer, which seems like a very long time, having had a previous failed uh, relationship, you know, there's such peaks and troughs and it's such a roller coaster as, as any relationship is, not just a, a romantic one. And there's like, there's bad times and there's always times when you could just decide to walk away and say, this is really annoying. I don't want to do this anymore. You could do that. And then say you don't do that. And there is like payoff to that sort of thing. There's something that grows. I kind of, I feel like a very old person now talking to you, Nisha, but it's interesting like that sticking with something, even sticking through bad things. I mean, I'm obviously not talking about things like where somebody's beating you up or somebody's doing something terrible. People should clearly get out of those relationships. But there is a payoff in kind of uh, sticking through bad times. You know, they talk about until death is right, good times and bad times, sickness and in health. There is a richness that comes from that that's very interesting that some people might not get to because they could just decide too easily to kind of go, no, not enjoying this anymore. See you later. So I've been thinking about that a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. But I think it's probably not exclusive to relationships. Mm. I think it's probably true of life that Definitely. We, we all need things that we go into depth with, but you can't go in depth with everything or else no depth will be achievable because your time's too divided. Mm. So there have definitely been times in writing when I haven't immediately wanted to do it, but I've been aware that if I stick with it, it will, if anything, enrich my relationship with it, that sacrifices have been made. But I still have to want to do it overall. Yeah. Whereas I could make myself do ice hockey forever and I would still not want to do ice hockey. I would still only achieve things through suffering. So I think maybe an element of it is just looking at the relationship on the whole and going, does this more often feel like writing or like ice hockey? Or if you're into <laughs> ice hockey, then reverse the two, obviously. <laughs> well, now you're making me want to go home and practice the F because I'm feeling like <laughs> I should just apply what I just said about my relationship to the guitar. and Get say, to act the F together. <laughs> yeah, act the F together. And then I'll have this richer, kind of deeper, more meaningful, having been through the struggle with the F and overcome it. This is getting very, very, uh, yeah, esoteric. I love it. Um, so are you happy with the response so far? Do you, are you, do you find it difficult to read your reviews or, or I not? I find it almost too easy because... <laughs> You're so funny. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think it's maybe one of my gifts as a person, but also not, that I tend to be almost clinically detached from that sort of thing. So it means praise doesn't really warm me on an emotional level, but it also means that things that aren't so nice don't personally devastate me. Either way, I'm just like, this is one reader's response to my novel, framed by all sorts of things that I don't even know, like what they were expecting, like what they just read. If they just read one that was similar to it, that will be different to if they read one that was very different to it. Mm. And I think as well, because I'm so reflective of my own habits as a reader, and I'm very quick and willing to say, I didn't like that book, but that's because I read it in a bad place. Or I did like this book, but that's because it showed something that's happened to me that I've never seen in fiction before and I didn't actually think it was that well written. I was just relieved to see that on the page and so on. So I'm always very aware that that can colour people's reception of my own So work. you don't take it personally, almost? No, I think water off a duck's back. That's a very good attitude. Because some people, some authors can't read their reviews, even the good ones. They just find it really difficult. Do you have friends in writing who are like that? Yeah, it's a funny one. I think with edits as well, some people really need time to go away and be alone with their feelings before they can start editing their work. Whereas I'm I'm almost too quick. Um, I'll cut something and then later I'll be like, oh, should I? But what can you do? Well, speaking of two very glowing reviews, on the cover of this book called The Happy Couple, you've got Calm Tabine and Marion Key. So on one side, Calm Tabine is saying a brilliant contemporary novel. And on the other side, Marion Keyes is saying so witty, observant and wise. I mean, surely the holy grail of, of uh, critique there. Yeah, no, I think both of them are fantastic for supporting younger Irish writers. And it sounds like such a basic thing to say, but it really makes a difference. Just how warm they are and how they have no scarcity mindset and they're just happy to see people doing well. Do you, because you talked about the sort of tall poppy syndrome earlier, like, do you think there is um, a scarcity mindset in some people? I mean, do you think everyone's able to be as generous as that? Or is there a kind of, oh, I've got a bit of success or I now want to keep it to myself and I don't want to give? Do you Have you experienced the opposite of that, I suppose? It's a strange one because I think being away from Ireland, I've probably been screened from what might have happened had I been here. Okay. I kind of only hear from people who actively reach out to me. So then that's going to be people who have something nice to say. <laughs> Whereas maybe if I still lived here and people felt like they had to say something, but they didn't have something nice to say, some of the tall poppy syndrome might have come back. But maybe not. It could well be that I've got all these old ideas of Irish womanhood that were relevant when I was a kid Mm. and no longer are, and I'm trapping myself in the prison of my own mind. So it makes it interesting to do media stuff because I see it as a continual experiment in how much has Ireland changed how much have people changed? And often I'm finding nowadays people love a confident Irish woman in a way that they really didn't 20 years ago. And that's, yeah, so you have memories of that. You, you have, it's obviously a residue. That Tell me more about it then, that idea of what an Irish woman should be. We touched on it slightly earlier, but go on a bit more about that. Yeah, I struggled to name names, but I definitely felt when I was younger that whenever an Irish woman got too successful and too personally and obviously aware that she was successful somebody would feel the need to cut her down. And I don't think I see that happening as much more. Like, we still all love Saoirse Ronan. There might be the odd person saying some bizarre thing about how she's faking her accent or something. But on the whole, I think nowadays, maybe because we're more internationally focused, there's more awareness Mm. that Ireland's a small place. And so when an Irish person does well for themselves abroad, there's more of a sense of just 
go us. We're great. Yeah. And you said to me as well when we talked that you were starting therapy or you were going to be in German. Oh, no, I was thinking about thinking it. Thinking about it, yeah. still haven't got around to that. But it, it is something you're interested in, though, sort of looking at those aspects of yourself, because that, that thing of, um, you, you've come on a long way, it sounds like, from what you were saying, where you can observe this tendency to kind of um, get at yourself or to be mean to yourself and see it for what it is and not let it sink in. And and maybe therapy might help a bit more with that. Yeah, I think what I'm still trying to figure out is whether I can break my pattern of intellectualizing my feelings. And I find that sometimes harder to avoid when I'm talking to someone than when I'm just stewing in things myself, because it's so much easier for me to theorize as to how I might be feeling and then just Mm. phrase that as though I know that it's what I'm feeling when in fact I have no idea. And so I think for now I'm more focused on non-verbal means of introspection but I think once I'm more confident that I can pay attention to what's happening in areas of my body besides my prefrontal cortex um, then maybe that'll be the time. Yeah and you also told me that uh, your parents don't read your books or you don't want them to read your books. I can't actually believe that. (laughs) They're not secretly read both your books. Very possibly but I just don't want to know. Tell everyone why you don't want to know. So I think maybe this is a generational thing that I would see detachment from my parents in my professional life as a desirable thing. It's definitely not the Ireland that they grew up in, where (laughs) your family knowing and getting behind your business was, if anything, a prerequisite for feeling good about your business. But I think it's not so much that I'm over-focused on what they think of the current thing. It's that when I'm writing the next thing, I don't want to be thinking about anything, but is this good? Am I doing justice to to these characters? Am I portraying what I want to portray in my head? And if I receive feedback from people I deal with in a personal capacity, I find that a lot harder to filter out than professional feedback because I have more occasion to think of those people. Mm. And so I'd rather just keep it out so I can have a clear head. And also carving out a space that you don't have to be thinking about it either. So it's your relationship with your mum and dad, you're not talking about what you think of my book or what about this review or that review. It's kind of like a you put a little um, fence around it. Yeah, and I think this might in some ways be a response to a bit of a complex I have from my childhood because I felt like I was valued for what I did or for what abilities I showed And I'm sure 90% of that was in my own head. And it was just that when I'd done something, I then acted happier and prouder. And so that was what people responded to. But nonetheless, I find it really nice in my general life to have relationships that aren't contingent on my skill at a given thing. I would like to be able to suck at things and still be loved because that's human connection. What are you rubbish at, Nisha? Everything. No, well, I give up 97% of things that I try. It's just the 3% that I keep have then been edited. I like to hear that. That makes me feel slightly better. Oh, let's not talk about all the languages I have not learned. So the fact that I have learned a few is like a really low success rate. But I don't see that as a problem. I, I see that as giving everything a go until I figured out that it's not for me and being honest with myself about what it would take to get good at the thing and then going... I don't want to do that. And it's not that I lack talent or lack a knack. It's that I don't want to do every step required to get to the final point. And mm. I think that's grand. So what are you writing at the moment? Tell us. I'm working on a third novel. I think it will be set in Berlin, but I don't know anything else yet, really. Oh, that's cool. As I said, Berlin, very cool. I think that's the only word I can 
used to describe it. I haven't even been there, but. Oh, come. So when you walk outside the door, like, is it just, yeah, full yeah. of coolness? No, I'm just like, I'm in Berlin. <laughs> I'm going to go to the bakery. I'm going to order a schrippe, which is a bread roll. A schrippe? Yes, that's the Berlin I... for it. So in general German, it's a brüchen. And then. Brüchen. Brüchen. I myself am butchering that, so you really shouldn't learn it from <laughs> okay, me. Okay. And then in Hamburg, it's a rundstück, which is a round thing. And there are all sorts of words like that. Okay. So Berlin is going to be your place for the foreseeable? For the foreseeable, yeah. And is there anywhere else in the world you'd like to live? Oh, I I think I could happily live in basically any city. My boundary is I don't drive. I refuse to learn. Why do you refuse to learn? Maybe it's a circular form of reasoning in that places where you need a car are unlikely to appeal to me on other reasons. They're unlikely to have significant numbers of homosexuals, I would say. They're unlikely <laughs> to have very much theatre going on and so forth. Bicycles. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, no, I need a, a good tram minimum. If Dublin got an underground, but... Uh, you know, nobody listens to me on these things, sadly. It's terrible. They should listen to you, Nisha. Yes. Um, it's been absolutely lovely talking to you and uh, I can't wait for the next one. I should. That's very greedy because I've, well, I've read this one twice and I really recommend it. But I'm looking forward to more writing from you because I just think you've got this incredibly brilliant wit. I should say it's a romantic comedy. I think that's what I'd call it. Is that is that OK to call it yes, that? Yes, that's completely fine. If Curtis Sittenfeld can write one, why not? Yes, exactly. And have you read that? Yes, it's I love it. brilliant, isn't yeah, it? She's oh, fantastic. She's so good. Um, she's such an entertaining writer and I think you are equally entertaining as well. And you're going on your book tour now. Is that what's happening next for you? Yeah, we're nearly done. Okay. I have done a series of things in Britain and now I'm on the good bit and <laughs> I'll be back to Berlin pretty soon. Okay, well, Nisha Dolan, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us. Thank you, Roisin. That was Nisha Dolan there and the book is called The Happy Couple. And remember the other book I told you about, The Beasting by Paul Murray. So take the two of them on holidays and I tell you, you won't be disappointed. The podcast is produced by Suzanne Brennan, by Katie Mellett and me, Roisin Ingle, with JJ Vernon on sound. If you want to get in touch with us about anything, we're on email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or we're on social at itwomenspodcast. That's it from me. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 